Welcome to the Why God Why podcast. My name is Peter Englert. I am the host of this wonderful show. We are brought to you by Browncroft Community Church. We respond to the questions that you don't feel comfortable asking in church. Uh, We are brought to you too by our wonderful producer, Nathan. And today is a question that you probably have hinted at at some point and you've asked. And the question is, why should I trust the Bible? And we have author professor and pastor, Dr. Mark Moore here with us. Uh, Mark, how you doing today? It, it's a great day here in Phoenix, America. <laughs> well, you know, you're wearing a shirt that should be a Rochester shirt into the storm. So there you go. That's right. It's, it actually came out of one of our, our, our sermon series where it was the weirdest, one of the weirdest series we've ever done. The rhino, the buffalo and the lamb. Oh. And this was the this was the buffalo uh, series where the buffalo is the only quadruped on the planet that when a storm comes they go into the storm because they know that's the quickest way out of the storm. So that's, that's kind of the way we roll around here. You know what? You just gave our listeners in Western New York the biggest compliment by saying that because that's literally who we are. So awesome. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> awesome. Um, well, hey, I introduced you a little bit. Why don't you just share a little bit about your story, about how you came to follow Jesus in your faith journey and where you are today in uh, Arizona? Yeah, well, I I grew up on the opposite side of New York uh, in Sacramento, California, and went to church growing up, a small, conservative, Bible-believing church. My mom, uh, during her PhD in psychology, left the faith, left our family. Uh, Eventually, both my brothers went to live with her. I stayed to live with my, my dad, a little bit of my just personal journey, but it shaped me in a way that at age 12... I had to make a decision about literally which parent I would live with, and that was based upon who would follow Jesus. Now, I wasn't a particularly genius kid, but I knew enough to know that if I wanted to keep following Jesus, I should probably align myself with a parent who had that kind of faith, even though I was closer to my mom. So that's a little bit of the the the, the short version of my growing up years. When it came time for college, I really felt a call of God to go into ministry. And so I went off to Ozark Christian College in the middle of America, which was uh, for a kid from California to live in Joplin, Missouri. It was like a whole different world for me. But it set me up through my adult life to say, I'm going to go wherever God calls me to go. And every sacrifice I make, I'm just going to trust him to backfill like Jesus made the promise when you give up mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, you will you will get a hundred times. That's a 10,000 percent increase. Um, and, and that's certainly what he's he's been faithful. He has promised. So after college, I uh, a really brief story. I went to San Antonio, Texas to preach in a bilingual church there, Anglo Hispanic returned to the college to teach at a stupid young age. Like nobody should have hired me at 27, but I was a professor from 27 to 48. So 22 years in the academy. And then I got an invite to this church here in Phoenix. That is like, I had had other job offers. I'd never actually seen a church or, or actually been invited to be on staff of the church that prioritized outsiders over insiders. So I just, I just couldn't say no. 
And <laughs> besides that, all the young bucks at the college, they were about to be better than me as a professor. And I figured if I left before they figured it out, I could stay a legend. So <laughs> that's a bit of my story. You know, I want to back up a little bit. Um, and I want to make sure I, I heard you right. So at age 12, you had to make a decision to be with one of your parents. And you said the deciding factor was the parent that followed Jesus. Tell me a little bit that's more. Right. Tell me a little bit more about that, because that's something surprising for a 12 year old to figure out. And as you reflect on it, it seems like it was a major decision in your life. It was the uh, other than following Jesus in the first place, I was nine when I gave my life to Jesus. Other than that, it was the most definitive decision I've ever made because my older brother, who I, you know, obviously older brother, you revere, he went and lived with my mom. He wanted to live with my dad, but my dad was our narcotics probation officer and he was dealing pot at the time. So it's a little, you know, conflict of interest. I was closer to my mom. And I wanted to go live with my mom. And even to this day, our personalities are much more similar than my father's. Uh, she's a better conversationalist. I felt more love and support from her. But she was walking away from the church, not just our, not just my dad. So both my parents, we lived with, all three of us lived with my dad for three months. Then we lived with my mom for three months. Then we had to make a decision. So my younger brother stayed with me with my dad, eventually it's a sad story. He got kicked out of the house and he went to live with my mom. So both my brothers eventually wound up, uh, in her home and under her surveillance. And I stay with my dad. Yeah. And how I did that, like people have asked me before, how does a 12 year old decide that I can't, I can take zero credit for it. I don't even know the answer to that. If it wasn't, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, I have no other explanation. Hmm. Well, and the reason I ask that is because when you think about this question, why should I trust the Bible? Like, it's almost as if, I don't know how else to say this, the more ignorance you have, the more faith you have. Because, you know, I have a similar story. I was following Jesus. I was probably like 13. And, you know, some I was playing basketball in a park and someone offered me pot and when they offered me pot, their next like thing was Jesus smoked pot. And being the brat nosed Christian school kid, I go, where's that in the Bible? But like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I look back at that and there was never a, I'm going to go do this, but you can see like God was kind of there. But I guess as we look at this question, it's almost as if the less you know, the more faith you have. Is that kind of the tension or how do you look at it in regards to this question? Why should I trust the Bible? It's interesting, Peter, when you, because it, as soon as you said that, the less you know, the more faith you have. Uh, I disagree with that. And I, I want to explain why. Because first of all, it, this was not in my earliest formative years, but in the last probably 10, 20 years, I've dug into the definition of faith quite a bit. And I think it is one of the most misunderstood words in Christianity because we've accepted a cultural definition of it, both on the, on the conservative Christian right, as well as the, the, the liberal non-Christian left. And I don't mean that 
all conservatives are Christians and, and those who are politically liberal are, are not. I don't mean that at all. I, here's what I do mean, that those who often are most critical of the faith, of, of Christianity, tend to de- define faith as a feeling. Well, that's not, Christ- that's not biblical at all. And those who tend to be closest uh, to biblical faith often define faith as intellectual assent. That's not biblical. Rather, the Greek word for faith, pistis, could more reasonably be translated as loyalty or allegiance. So, even to, getting getting back to the statement, the less the less knowledge you have, the more faith you have. I don't define faith either as a feeling in your heart or knowledge in your head. I define it as loyalty in your hands. Now, this the second thing, and and I I recognize Peter that for many people. Your that description fits the less faith you have or the less knowledge you have, the more faith you can have. It's never fit for me because God wired me in kind of academically. And I'm a I'm a logical kind of studied. That's where I got my self-esteem is, you know, reading a lot of books and that kind of thing. Faith. I have more questions than I have answers. But if you if you just piled up all the questions I have on a table and all the answers I have, even about the Bible, we'll talk more about that. The stack of what I don't know is way bigger than what I do know. Those that lack faith focus on the stack of questions and those who have faith focus on the stack of, of what we do know. Instead of counting the questions, I weigh them. And what I know about Jesus Christ, what I, I know that I know that I know, the bodily resurrection, the integrity of the biblical text, the creation of the world by God, those things that I do know, though the stack is short, it is, it's like the questions are cotton candy and the, the, the answers that I have are lead. They weigh, weigh more. So the, what I know can bear the weight of what I don't know. Mm. Maybe that's the best way to describe it. No, I'm, I'm so love. I I love that we threw that grenade and I want to follow up. And I I think this is super helpful to this question. So Jesus says things like have the faith or have the allegiance of a child. And we can read that as a 21st century person. And you know, I'll also say this, I grew up Pentecostal. And so I don't believe that ignorance equals more faith, but it's just, it's kind of, I think it's a thought that's out there, but you know, so I guess, how do you wrestle with that when Jesus makes statements, have faith like a child? And obviously you know what the Greek means to that, but you are someone that's super intellectual and you even just described, Hey, I have a lot of questions, but I have a lot of answers. I put more weight into that. How do you wrestle with that? Yeah, so one of the one of the things that, and I don't want to spin off into any specifics. So I'm not even going to tell you the topics that I wrestle with. But there there's some things that I read in the Bible, and I just sit back and go, that that's hard to wrap my my mind around. I wrestle with it in a similar way that Job does. Which, by the way, I think Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible, and it answers 
the deepest question of all humanity, of every religion of all time, and that is, why do bad things happen to good people? I mean, that, that, is, the, that is the faith-destroying experience of many people. I lost a loved one, or there's a crisis, and God just can't be good if my life isn't good. And Job, it's so brilliant what he does. He changes the question. Our questions are why. But let's just take an example. Someone gets, someone gets uh, brain cancer. It's a terminal cancer. I've got three months to live. If I could answer your question of why you got cancer, would that take your cancer away? No. Would it help you feel better? No. Would it help you heal? No. So the why question that is so destructive to people's allegiance to God is the wrong question. Even if I was like a pagan therapist, I would still not allow my clients to ask the why question because it only spins you off into deeper darkness. Here's what Job does. He changes the question from why to who. Who can help? And God, again, because I am intellectually oriented, I, I analyze this pretty, like, with data and stats. If you look at the good that God has done in the world, like biblical Christianity, you take biblical Christianity out of our, our society, God would never have to send anyone to hell because we would create hell ourselves. And we have. Case, case in point. One of the questions that were the big question is, why should I trust the Bible? Well, because of what it's done for society in every culture around the world where the Bible has been preached. There is greater human rights track record than countries where the Bible has not been preached, period, exclamation point. And you can trace that through education, through women's rights, through through sexual abuse, through slavery. It is stunning that any anyone who says they care about humanity and the, and the human rights of people would criticize the bible even if it's not true mm-hmm. it is the best myth for creating the best life on this planet wow so i want to kind of back up because i don't think people hear someone with this much passion on the Bible. Like I joked with you in our pre-meeting, I said, we could have recorded a podcast right now. You would have been fine. Yeah. So describe to our listeners your journey of engaging, experiencing, and receiving transformation from the Bible, because I think it's so different. And from what I'm hearing from you, there's times when things don't make sense, but it seems like you just can't get enough of it. Describe that journey for us. Yeah, so uh, I'll just I'll just tell you where I am now, and then back up and t- and tell you how I got there. If I were to doubt the Bible, it probably wouldn't be Jonah. That's the big one that people say, right? Because being swallowed by by a whale or a big fish, really, I'm like life itself is a miracle. So if you're going, whether you whether you believe in God or not. There is no explanation for life. There is no explanation for love. There is no explanation for music outside of a divine creator. So I've already, I've already crossed the bridge over supernatural. So that doesn't throw me. I'll tell you the, I'll tell you what does throw me. Jesus, it is only in Matthew. He tells Peter, uh, 
Peter, Peter told was having a conversation. They said, does your, does your teacher pay the temple tax? And he said, Oh yes, yes, yes. He pays the temple tax. And then Jesus said, Peter, why, like, why would you say that? Do the sons, do the sons of the Kings pay taxes? Why, why should I have to pay taxes? But, but I'm going to pay taxes. So here's what we're going to do. Go down to the lake, uh, throw your line in, catch a fish. And there's going to be two coins, a two drachma coin in the fish's mouth. Go pay the temple tax for me and for you. Now, the skeptic in me goes, okay, you have a preacher and a fisherman telling a story. The likelihood of exaggeration is like 110%. That kind of passage, I just cock my head and go, did that, did that really happen? I believe what I do not understand based upon the foundation of what I do understand. And that started for me, Peter, literally in the eighth grade. I remember well, I was in a church that talked a lot about water immersion. The friends I was around, their churches didn't talk about water immersion. And I just thought, man, I think we're making too much. I, I think we're making too big of a deal over water immersion. So I got this book. I discovered it was like. It, it, it was like uh, someone finding a gold mine. It's a strong concordance. You remember those things? Like everything's digitized now, but before computers, someone literally went through the Bible and every the, they marked it down and the verse reference and every and, and like every word of all the King James Bible. And in the back of this, they had a definition of every Greek word with a, like a number to it. So you don't have to actually know Greek to, to, to understand the Greek word. I'm like 13 years old. And I discovered this. And I thought, wait a minute. I can get back to the original source. How cool is that? And I looked up every verse in the New Testament that talked about the verb baptism or, or baptize and the noun baptism. And it, it, it altered my mind. It altered my view. And I just, I just got hooked reading Josh McDowell's evidence that demanded verdict. It was the same year I read that. It was like my, my brain was waking up to the fact that the faith my father gave to me actually has a historic, logical, archaeological, systematic foundation. And it just, it was like the way God wired me and the tradition that I had been given suddenly aligned and I had justification for the faith that I had. That journey then led me to Bible college, led me to five years of studying Greek and four years of studying Hebrew. Later came Aramaic. I have been incredibly blessed to be paid to study the Bible for 30 years. I'm just I can't believe that God gave that to me. And so the excitement, in fact, it's funny. My son-in-law is a worship pastor, much more on the emotional side. He worships through music. I have a hard time worshiping through music. I know that probably makes me a bad person, but I'm sitting like I'm sitting in my office now. When I discover something, I literally dance in worship in my office. I, ca I can't stay in my seat. I got to go to the other players on our team and say, hey, look what I just discovered. So they know when, when they see Mark coming, I've just discovered something new in the Bible. And it's a time that we worship together through the word of God aligning with my created nature. Mm. So let's back up. Um, back up. 
so you're with so some people uh, you serve uh you said phoenix right i, I want to say tempe or phoenix in phoenix yeah, christ church of the valley in phoenix Arizona. Yeah. so you know you've kind of made it your mission to help people love and engage the bible but you know i talk to people you know they'll say things like i'm way too busy which hints to other things. I think people are hesitant. I don't know what this means. I don't know what to do with it. As you engage yep. and yep. have this passion, what are the things that you think really keep people from engaging the Bible? Well, we actually we actually know. Mm -hmm. the, I was just at the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C. last week, and I was reminded again, the very first book ever printed on a printing press, Gutenberg's printing press, 1453, was the Bible. And since that time, every year, year over year, there is not a close second to the number of Bibles printed to any other book. So it's this book that has massive distributive power and massive cultural impact. And yet people are more and more pulling away from biblical text. And you ask the question, why? Why do people, even good Christian people, have their bucket list? I'm going to read through the Bible this year, finally. Well, we, you know, we start in Genesis in January, and that's cool. You know, you got, you got some naked people in a garden. That's interesting. You got a flood and then Abraham and a little bit of, of family turmoil. That's interesting. Exodus, plagues. That's interesting. Then you get to Leviticus. And, and so, like, middle of February, Valentine's Day, you're going, yeah, I'm out. I'm out. Done. Because none of this makes sense. So here's the simple answer to your question. There are two things that keep people from reading the Bible. It's a big book and it's an old book. That's it. So I don't know if we were planning on talking about this, but uh, the, so the, the church I serve is um, we have 12 campuses around the, the Phoenix area, about, about 30,000 in attendance um, on the weekend, plus whoever's online. We have some really busy executives and high, high powered people. They're not going to spend an hour a day reading the Bible. And in fact, they're probably not going to read through the whole Bible. So I thought, well, wait a second. In our other lives, like everybody who's busy is really careful about what they invest in. And they lean into the Pareto principle, 80-20 principle, that 80% of the benefit you get from anything comes from 20% of the effort. So what if I, as the expert, just said, okay, you don't have to read the whole Bible, but here are the pieces that are going to take you further, faster in your faith. And so I literally wrote a book called Core 52. It is the 52 verses of all the Bible that preachers keep preaching because it keeps changing lives the most. So Core 52 is just an index of those 52 verses with some online, for, for each of the 52, I produce a little video, you can find it on YouTube or Vimeo, where I teach through that passage of scripture in about six minutes. And then I offer some commentary. This is honestly, Peter, this is bathroom reading. It's like five pages Per, uh, per, per verse, where because it's a big book, I've made it small. Because it's an old book, I'm, I'm acting as a field guide or a tour guide to show you just briefly how to get the most out of this verse. And we've had people all over the country say that that has revolutionized their biblical literacy. 
mm. in just one year. Mm. No, we are going to so talk. So that's a tool. Well, we were going to talk a little bit about it because, you know, we want to recommend to our listeners because our assumption is whether our listeners are de-churched or unchurched or they attend church regularly, they're asking this question, does the Bible work? And I think that that's kind of what you're trying to hint at is that these ancient doctrines and theologies that don't seem really practical are really helpful. And, you know, from even what you're saying in your life, like the truths of the Bible, they work in real life. Yeah. And and let me give an example of that. And this is actually one of the chapters in core 52 on happiness, universal desire to be happy. Right? So I started looking at Psalm one and there's, there's 150 Psalms in the Bible. It's right in the middle of the Bible. That's our worship text. Well, Psalm one is actually a gateway And if you walk through that gateway, you walk into this world of worship in the Bible. And in that gateway, it it gives the mechanism for happiness. It begins by saying, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand uh, in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. That text might be familiar to some people, but it begins with the word blessed. If you want a happy life, Psalm 1 is the gateway into this worship world that brings you happiness. But if you take Psalm 1 and you lay it next to the science of happiness, I'm talking about the biological science, there are three chemicals in your brain that bring you happiness. One is oxytocin, serotonin, and dopamine. Each of those chemicals are released by different kinds of activities. Uh, oxytocin is the uh, like the comfort uh, chemical. You, you connect with someone. Serotonin is for respect uh, when someone says sir or ma'am or opens the door for you. Uh, dopamine, my favorite, like I'm an addict, is from when you have an adrenaline rush. The way you get those three chemicals in your brain that lead to happiness or a chemical cocktail of happiness are outlined in Psalm 1. It has to do with relationships for oxytocin, adventure for dopamine, which is, is, is going out and, and following the commands of God. And the other one is uh, serotonin is significance of understanding who you are and the value you have. I think it's It's freakishly genius that the psychology of modern medicine was actually reflected in a text that is 1,000 years before Christ. God knew how our brains worked. And so that's one example. I could give you a thousand examples of how the Bible in modern, in the modern world actually makes sense. No, I think that that's super helpful. One question, you know, because... If you're not, so I have a similar story to you. I got, a, I got a Thompson chain reference Bible when I was like 12 and I would look at the different yeah. verses and the more I studied, the more like I just got intrigued and loved the Bible. That's why I'm a pastor hosting a podcast. But I think a lot of people wrestle with the literalness of the Bible and people's interpretations of the Bible, you know, because it's not like there's one person that we look to and say, Hey, you've got it all. So how do you help people and even help yourself wrestle with, this is a book that was written for us, not to us. It was written to ancient audiences, 
but then they had different rules about genre. They had different ways. So if you read even just the the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're not playing by the same rules that we have for the autobiographies of other people and famous people today. So how do you wrestle with the literalness and the interpretation? Yeah, so let me answer the question in two different ways because that's such an important question. The first thing is I'm going to give your audience a starter kit for reading the Bible in 30 seconds that if they did this today, tomorrow, and all week, they would begin to see a transformative power of the Bible in their own lives. And here's what, here's what I mean by that, Peter. Some sociological studies have looked at what happens in people's lives who engage in the Bible four days a week or more on their own. And we're talking about five minutes, 10 minutes, just read the Bible. Drunkenness goes down by over 60%. Sexual immorality drops by 60%. Self-esteem raises by 30%. Isolation lowers by 30%. So in tangible, practical ways. If you're a pre-Christian listening to this, like you're not fully committed to Jesus, that, that's okay, no, no judgment. Try reading the Bible for 30 days in a row and see if it doesn't help you with your mental health, with your relationships, with your personal disciplines. Now, obviously, we believe that the Bible is much more than a self-help book. So here's the 30 seconds. Everyone can do this. Read one chapter a day. Isolate one verse from that chapter that you want to implement today. And try for one hour to live it out. Just one hour. You can't do more than that. So, for example, you read Matthew chapter 7. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. There's like 20 verses there that I want, I want to live out. One of them is do to others what you want others to do to you. Okay, so I'm going to choose that one. I'm going to isolate that verse. And then for one hour, I'm going to try to do exactly that. That will blow your mind. Read one chapter a day. Isolate one verse to, to practice. Practice that verse for one hour. That's pretty simple, right? Now, that doesn't answer your question. Because what happens when I come to a verse that I don't know what to do with? Well, this may be simplistic, but I would literally write a question mark in the margin of your Bible and ask your pastor on the weekend or ask a, a mentor, what do you think that means? You don't have to agree with everyone's opinion on what it means, but they're going to be able to, again, like a field guide or a tour guide, they're going to be able to say, well, in Jesus' day, this is what a Pharisee was, and this is what they believed. And you're going to go, oh, wait, that makes, that makes so much sense. It's like, this is kind of a, maybe a crass illustration, but when, when I went to India, they said, do not shake people's hands with your left hand. Because it's for personal hygiene for people who don't have toilet paper. Don't do it. Well, if you don't know that, that's a mystery, Every culture has their own idiosyncrasies. And some of it is just learning how other people, and it's just, I think it's courteous when you go to another country that you should learn a, a little bit of their habits and protocols so that you can fit in. 
And we're just doing that with a Bible. Because it's 2,000 years ago, you might need a tour guide on some passages. Okay, so now let me answer the question as you intended it. Because what about literal versus figurative? If you're watching a Western, some guy comes out in a black hat and he's in the middle of the street, you know what's going to happen. There's going to be a gunfight. You interpret that genre according to its innate rules. If you read a Hallmark card, you read it very differently. If you read a newspaper, you read it differently. Learning the genre of the Bible it has been a great blessing for me. But again, it's, it's like learning any new kind of literature. You have to learn the rules. And there are, there are some really helpful, good helps. I would say to everyone listening, if you're a busy business person, you don't have to go to college and take a class. Just pay attention in, in a sermon on the weekend how your pastor handles that text because they have had the class of hermeneutics. Will they all agree? No. But on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guesstimate, if you ask 100 pastors their opinion on 100 verses, you're going to get about a 95% alignment on 95% of the verses. And for practical implementation of the Bible, that's way more than sufficient. Now, I'll say one more thing and then, and then and take a breath. I don't know, I just keep rambling here. I think the biggest problem, well, I don't want to put this on your church. I'll put it on our church. The biggest problem in, with people in my church, the people that I was in my small group last night, the biggest problem with my small group is not that they don't understand the Bible, but it's they don't implement what they do understand. And when you implement what you do understand, that which you don't understand will either drop off as unimportant or get clarified by the actual practice of the scripture you do understand. Mm. You know what? <clears throat> I'm going to go, because of your last phrase, I'm going to go in a different direction. So I want to back up to what you said about one verse, one chapter, one hour. I know, or one chapter, one verse, one hour. So this morning I read John 12 and it's about Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And there's one whole verse that talks about Jesus knew um, who his father was. And it just ties this identity to Jesus takes off his apron. He starts washing his feet. And so immediately, this isn't rocket science, um, but you're thinking, if I know who I am, if I know how God's created me, I don't have to feel slighted if I serve in a different way. Bro. So, so like, I, that's, yeah, go, go ahead. Huge. <laughs> I, 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 so when you, when you said John 12, I immediately thought, so Peter's going to tell everybody, so I'm going to serve somebody today. That's actually not the most important thing in that verse. <laughs> Identity. Yes. Is the most important part of the verse. Mm. Well, yeah, that's right. Well, and, and then I want to hear more from you, but so I read that. And lo and behold, my one-year-old wakes up and I have to change her diaper. And all of a sudden, like, not that I don't need to matter, but hey, because God has given me this gift, I have this opportunity to serve my daughter. 
I have this opportunity to make them breakfast. And so like, it just hit me differently today. And, you know, again, I, I don't think reading the Bible to me is like driving by a house that you see on your way to work. And one day it hits you and it says, you go, did they have blue shutters? I'd never noticed that before. Like you can read the same thing. So I don't know, that's a practice. Fill in more, push back on that. Or, or what are some of your thoughts? No, I think that's ex exactly what I'm wanting to get at. People, people make the Bible way too complicated. And I'm going to say something that this might be insightful for some of your listeners. It might be offensive to others, but the majority of Christians that I know, their knowledge of the Bible is not merely a tool that allows them to live out God's commands, but is a bragging right for their own bolstering of their egos. And particularly those of us who like went to a Bible college or maybe were in ministry, the more Bible you know, clearly the better person you are. Well, Jesus said something very different. He said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in, in them you'll have life, but you refuse to come to me and I'm the one that the scriptures are pointing to. If you're looking for the Bible to validate your ego because you know these mysteries, you're gonna get spun out into irrelevant doctrine. But if you're looking at the Bible as a template for how to live life in loyalty to God, and there's our faith word again, you are gonna find in like overwhelming practical application for your life in every single chapter of the Bible. So let me give another, another example. You talked about identity. The most apparently irrelevant chapter in the Bible is Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus. It's a stupid list of names. Until you realize there are three women in that genealogy who changed the course of history and all of them had accusations of sexual immorality and like three, well, three of them. No, they were, they were, they were true. I'm sorry, four women and three of them had bona fide sexual allegations against them. One of them, it was not a bona fide sexual allegation. What did we learn from that about your identity that God can use you in his genealogy of his son in spite of your, not just in spite of your background, but because of your background, you can play a part in the divine role of God. And so even the most seemingly irrelevant chapters of the Bible, when you read with an applicational mindset in view, become extremely practical, especially, Peter, I'm glad you brought this up, when you, when you look at your identity and who, who am I? Who does the Bible say that I am? So you talked about before that ignorance um, doesn't make you more, um, shouldn't be opposed to faith. But even what you're saying right now is like you can come with assumptions or maybe faux intelligence. So what does that intellectual humility look like? Because we live in this society that you can Google anything, 
you know, I think part I've heard from professors, they're like, what do I have to teach? I have all this experience and this knowledge. So I guess, you know, I want to kind of manage that tension because you've brought that up of like people come to the Bible. There's some people that by virtue of knowing the Bible, they're not actually living it out and they're self-righteous. I mean, how do you pull all of that together to have the intellectual humility to actually be someone that culture can respond to that experiences life in Jesus? Mm. Yeah, well, that's been, that's been a struggle for me, Peter, because it just in full transparency, in my 22 years of teaching at the college, I, I was a popular professor, my classes closed. And so I, I'm not saying that I was a failure, but when it came time to class critique and the students, you know, write out the evaluations and it's anonymous so they can say anything, the number one criticism I got was he's arrogant. I haven't been arrogant a day in my life. Pompous, sure. Brash, absolutely. Like almost on purpose, but arrogant, no. When I have appeared arrogant, it is because of insecurity, not over-security. The appearance of my arrogance is a thin veneer trying to cover over my insecurity. As I've matured, and as I've allowed my identity to come more from God, I'm not there yet, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm better than I was. The more my identity comes from my father in heaven and not from my peers on earth, the more I'm able to shift my focus, even in my preaching. I do a lot of, I do a lot of coaching for our communicators around here. The number one rule for, for preaching a better sermon is to start with your audience and not start with the stage. And I used to start with a stage of what do I know that I could share that would make people go, wow, he's smart or wow, he's funny. As I, as I have settled in my identity in Christ, I have the bandwidth to focus on the needs of others so that my knowledge now becomes a tool of service. It is an act of foot washing, not of self-promotion. And because of that, look, I am no less interested in the Qumran scrolls or the Talmud or the Mishnah or, you know, different translations. Like I geek out over that stuff, but it's no longer what I need to share. I share what is important for the other person to take their next step towards Jesus. That's where life is. And if we would just get the mindset of the, from the Bible, that it is not a tool to like, you're not being, you're, you're not being judged by your faithfulness to Christ by how much, you know, it's like, it's, it's not a multiple choice test. And the, the ones with a higher score are get closer to heaven. It's a, it is a, it's like a coach's guide in a huddle, man. Here's, here's how you run the next play and you run the next play and you sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't. You watch the film, you regroup, you come back to the huddle and you do it again. Mm. But the Bible study is the huddle. The game is where the action is. So you could almost, to some of our skeptics that are listening, or even to some of people that say, I don't have time to read the Bible, I don't fit it in. You're almost in a way pushing back and say, what is it about you that's keeping you from reading the Bible? Yeah. 
Yeah. And what it is about most people is I don't want to feel stupid. Mm. And this, this book is so big. I don't know where to start. And what if I don't finish it? What if I just took all the pressure off and said, look, don't, don't worry about reading the whole Bible. Okay. Don't, don't. Why don't you start with the book of James? It's, it's five chapters towards the tail end of the Bible. Look it up in the concordance. They'll tell you where it is. Go to that page, read, read James five chapters, read that for, for five days. And after James, why don't you try John? It's a simple book. It's 21 chapters that those two will take you a month to go through simple enough by the, I promise you, if you would just do that by then you would have the confidence to choose another book that might make sense to you uh, for where you are in life. The other thing I think for those that are skeptical of the Bible, they talk about, you know, so let's get into uh, some of the, some of the critics of the Bible that it's not relevant. Um, how much of it have you read? Seriously, if you're saying the Bible's not relevant, just be honest. How much have you actually read? Cause if you go to Proverbs, for example, here are the five primary topics of Proverbs, friendships, sexuality, finances, work ethic, and faith in God. I don't deal with any of those. <laughs> yeah. I mean, seriously, come on. Job, oldest book in the Bible, deals with the number one question that people are asking. If you, here's another, like a Romans 8. Romans 8, I think, is the greatest therapeutic text of the Bible. In fact, I had a, had a young woman, she came to me like a year and a half ago, triggered uh, anxiety through the roof, and she said, what do I do? I'd never met her before in my life. I said, well, I challenge you to memorize Romans 8. A year later, she comes up to me and goes, I did it. That word for word, I memorized Romans 8. She was in therapy for her anxiety. Her therapist said, you don't need to see me anymore. She doesn't credit the therapist. She credits the word of God because, as you mentioned earlier, Romans 8 is all about your identity. And she rewrote her identity and her therapist said, you don't have to come, you don't have to come anymore. Well, she, so the reason she's so excited to tell me this is we had a, a guest speaker at our church and he talked about tithing, giving 10% of your income. And she said, I was sitting in church going, I can't tithe. I don't have the money to tithe. Wait a minute. I'm not paying my therapist anymore. I can tithe. And the act of generosity that flowed out of her brought more healing to her. It's just one of those stories where the word of God does its best work in us when we get it in our hearts and we put it into practice. So if you're skeptical that the Bible's not relevant, like that doesn't even make sense to me from someone who actually reads the Bible. Here's the second uh, objection people have that this, this book is full of errors. Now I'm going to get a little technical. So the bucket your seatbelts. If you compare the manuscripts of the new Testament to every other ancient writing, like for example, um, August Caesar's uh, Gallic Wars. He, he inscribed his own Gallic War, wrote kind of autobiographically how great he was when he conquered his enemies. That document, about the same time as the New Testament, little little earlier, but 50 years earlier, that document was put in the 
National Archives of Rome, protected by soldiers, we have eight copies of that document, which is not bad for a 2,000-year-old book, right? Compare that to the New Testament, 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. So the documentary evidence is so much greater for the New Testament. Because of that, and because all of these documents were handwritten, there will be some variations over the years from one manuscript to another. And that's throwing a lot of people off. Well, Peter, I was, I was sharing this with the church, and I wanted to show a picture of one of these ancient documents from the second centuries, Book of John, the story of Jesus turning tables over in the temple. And I'm literally looking at this photograph of this manuscript, and I go, wait a minute. Somebody squiggled something in between the lines. What is that? They added the letters T-A to the end of the word kerma. Kerma is coin, is singular, coin. And so the original text said Jesus threw the co- threw, turned over the coin. Well, there's more than one coin, right? It should have been plural. Now, we can still talk about coin, singular, as plural, as in the phrase common coin. And so it wasn't grammatically incorrect, but it wasn't as clear as it could be. So some scribe added T-A, which is in our language, would be like adding an S, coin, to coins. Is that really an error that you're talking about? And look, I have examined thousands of these variants, thousands of them. None of them are more significant than that. There are a few that, that we really have questions over, but Christianity, and I don't, I don't mean to berate any other religion, but Christianity has shown, has always been more honest about original documents than, say, the Book of Mormon, which has some changes that have been kind of hidden, or the Quran, which th- those changes have been hidden. Even the documents destroyed to hide the changes. We've never done that. We, we put our documents in museums for everyone to see and compare. And so if you're a skeptic out there, I would just, not in an aggressive way, but I would challenge you, look at some of the variants and see if those, <coughs> those are the kind of variants that shake your faith in the text, getting back to the original wording. Now, I'm not saying you have to believe it's God's word, but there is no doubt that it is the document that the original Christians read with an accuracy estimate of 99.9%. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. Um, <clears throat> our time went by really fast and I felt like it went, it was a mix of going to class and enjoying the professor, having coffee with you and hearing a sermon. So that is one of the best compliments I can give the guests. That means we got to have you back on. So what I want to do is Thank before, you, before we close, um, I always ask this question, what does Jesus have to say about this topic? And, um, so I answer it. The great thing about you is you get to clean up any heresy that I leave there and then we'll go from there. So, um, and then, you know, at the end of it, we'll give some next steps. Cause I think our listeners are going to want to take some next steps. So, you know, what does Jesus have to say about this? Um, you know, it's, it's interesting to me that Jesus, one of his most repeated phrases was as it's written, or he points back to scripture, like this is fulfilled. And, 
you know, I think there's a lot of statistics that say people like love Jesus more than they love the church, more than they love the Bible. And from this conversation in my life, like you just can't disconnect Jesus from the Bible that he read. You know, you can't disconnect Jesus from the Bible that obviously he saw that. And, and I, I think it's, it's not happenstance. It's not irony. It's not coincidence that, you know, if you Google Bible and mental health and you Google all these statistics, the way that this is communicating and engaging almost the unexplainable way, it just matters in your life. And I, I think that Jesus would say, yeah, read the Bible. So that's my, what about you? Yeah, I, I, I'll go, I will go one step beyond that. Not, not mm-hmm. only would Jesus say to read the Bible, if you look at how he read it, mm-hmm. it was, it was so careful. It was so respectful, but beyond just being careful and respectful, it was, he was looking in a mirror and he didn't just look at the Bible as if it was an ancient artifact. He was saying, where am I in the Bible? Now, obviously, he's, he is prophesied as Messiah, but you and I are prophesied as well. Jesus, in his final prayer, John 17, talked about disciples who would be unified and love each other. You can find yourself in the Bible, and when you find yourself in the Bible, that's when the transformation really comes out. And then Jesus did one other thing. He studied it carefully. He read it autobiographically. And then he applied it in the most difficult seasons of life. So when he's being tempted by the devil, he quoted scripture. When he was on the cross, he quoted scripture. And so if we have, we don't have to know all the Bible, but as you get the text into you, in in points of pain, it will come out of you and create a path for you through the pain of your life. I please read the Bible. Even if you don't believe it, read it and apply it to minimize the pain in your life. What a great way to end. So Mark, let me, let me ask you this. Um, you mentioned core 52. I have a copy of it. I'm reading over it right now. Love what I see. What's the best way for people to get a hold of you. And if you could give them, and this is shameless plug, give them one step. What would you tell them to do with the Bible? Well, my one step would be read one chapter a day, focus on one verse and apply it for one hour. Core 52 is available really wherever books are sold. But if you go to core52.org, we have packed that with resources for you that are no additional cost, questions for group discussion, videos to watch. I even, this is so fun. I did a three minute video for each of the verses to help you memorize it if you chose to take that next step. So if you're serious about knowing the Bible better, your life will be better. Mm -hmm. That's really good. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We're definitely going to have you back on. We'll have to pick a really difficult topic, like the violence in the Old Testament or something. We'll have fun with that. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me, Peter. God bless. That's great. Well, anyways, thank you so much. If you want to get a hold of us at Why God Why, go to whygodwhypodcast.com, click the subscribe button, and we look forward to seeing you in other episodes. You'll get this emailed to you directly every week in other episodes. Thank you so very much. Thank you.